Hi, welcome to Jump Into Parkour. I'm your host, Hedge. Today, I'm interviewing Brad Wendes, the lead coach at Kinetics Academy down in Essex. Brad and I talked about his background, his disillusionment with gymnastics, his new acrobatics course, and how he's trying to contribute positively to society and be a good role model. I was trying to pin Brad down in person. He was up here, but unfortunately, we kind of missed each other. So this is a remote interview. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Welcome to the Jump Into Parkour podcast. I am Hedge and I'm delighted to have Brad Wendes from Team Kinetics with me today. Hi, Brad. Hey, Hedge. How's it going? Uh, I'm good. Uh, I am weirdly in my bedroom and you are in your office and we're not recording together. We planned to, but we kind of managed to have a complete fail because both of us have slightly more complex lives. But we did actually just hang out last week, which was really nice. Um, Brad delivered a course for us, so we'll get to be talking about that later. But first, I want to sort of introduce Brad and get a little bit of your backstory. And Brad, it seems like the best way to start your story is with Graham Wendy's. So shall we start there? Yeah, uh, Graham was was my stepfather. He raised me from the age of um, five, almost six, um, and uh, after my parents separated. And I didn't, I, I've never really had a great relationship with my, my biological father, so he was my primary male role model and I, I think as I've got older I've kind of had a lot more to say about Graham and preaching Graham and um, he was very outspoken and uh, he was quite the wordsmith he, he wrote a book and he used to post these enormous rants on Facebook and social media and, and rant to whoever would listen to him but he was he was quite the wordsmith and after he passed away in 2017 I went through his computer and I found unfinished short stories and poems and it's amazing to read that kind of thing and um, that no one had ever read that just was the the fruits of his imagination but as a person he was unique and it's very easy to say that because he was my my father figure and everyone thinks that they're they're world special but um, he really was a unique human being it wasn't perfect it's very easy to see someone through rose-tinted spectacles after after they've passed away and there were good times and bad times but as as a human being he was uh, he was quite remarkable and just wanted to help people. That's really cool. So it's interesting that uh, one of the things I'm quite interested in right now is how parkour and masculinity has a weird attachment together and how we don't tell enough the story. We're sp- I spend a lot of time working on inclusivity. I think it's really important. But sometimes we do have to come back to the story that a lot of people who got into parkour are people who have stories to tell. And a lot of them are men and men who grew up specifically with a way of feeling and a way of experiencing the world. So it's interesting that you're talking about this really strong father figure and influencing you. So what about him do you remember? Uh, I think there's <clears throat> two aspects of his character that are very important that, that anyone who had any time with Graham would, would know and understand. The first one was his absolute um, vicious determination for everything to be fair. And I think unfairness really bothered him. Um, And as someone from a poor background, I think unfairness was a a big part of his life. Wasn't wealthy at all. He grew up and did an apprenticeship as a bricklayer. He worked on holiday camps. He worked in entertainments. Never really was particularly affluent. And I think it's very easy to see the world as a little bit unfair when you come from those kind of backgrounds. But so he always strove for fairness which was which was an interesting point because 
Graham's idea of fairness and equality and what was right and what was wrong, I think perhaps what doing what's right rather than fairness. He would fight parking tickets for years and have court <laughs> cases going on because it wasn't right that it was... Whereas the easiest thing to do, and I think these parking companies expect you to simply pay the small fine, the time and effort that went into him fighting unfair parking ticket and road collisions <laughs> and things like that was just ridiculous. But in his mind, that was right. That He was fighting a yeah. just cause. And 90% of the time he won, uh, which was great. You know? um, so little things like yeah, that yeah. And, and fighting injustices. Uh, but I think the the most wonderful thing about Graham was was that uh, the that he displayed um, the closest thing to true altruism I've ever known in a in a human being. Now that is uh, doing something to the benefit of others to your own detriment, and it's often argued that that that's not uh, that's not possible. Even doing something nice for someone else might make you feel good about yourself or mm-hmm. might raise your social profile. These influences and things giving money or giving food to homeless people and filming it that's not altruism that that's just self-indulgence so what graham used to do was help people without them even knowing so he would pay for people to go on courses and never tell them that he paid for it so if someone needed something professionally he'd just book a course and say oh no i've sorted it out it's fine or even on a couple of occasions he would have uh, make an introduction without even making the introductions. He would talk to one person about someone else and talk to that person about this person. And then there'd be a happen, a chance meeting or he'd have paid this person <laughs> to mentor this person and told this person not to say that there was any money tra- changing hands. And it was it was an incredible thing that he did that just to just to try and help people and boost other people's careers while he was living in a very small rented flat working in construction and spending every penny he had to help other people. And that's very, very rare, especially for someone who would never admit to doing all the things he did. That's, that's wonderful. And so with this figure in your life, I guess parkour must be quite interesting because it is a space which promotes equality and it's a space which does have connections to altruism and thinking about the way you operate and thinking about how you behave. So I can imagine that you come with a whole bunch of, I'm going to call it baggage, but that's maybe not fair, uh, assumptions, and then you kind of walked into the world of parkour. Yeah. that does. Ex- I guess that does explain... Yeah, interesting. Cool. I love learning more about people. So then let's kind of get onto your background, because I think t- you say that you have a gymnastics background, but I was listening to another podcast, and I realized that when you're describing gymnastics, you're not really describing artistic gymnastics or what we mostly think of. So do you want to give a little bit of a lowdown? Sure. I've had an interesting relationship with gymnastics. So I joined a gymnastic display team at the age of uh, 11. I just turned 11 and I'd seen them on TV. They'd been on a couple of programs, which were You Bet and uh, Blue Peter. So a couple of kids TV programs I saw when I was 10 years old and they happened to be local. And uh, so anyone who's listened to me talk before knows that I, I wanted to go to a very specific high school because that's where the gymnastic team was. And and we end up moving to the other side of town so that I could, you know, have friends in my area near my school. So my, my parents were very child centric, even though we, we didn't have a lot of money, they would put me first in a lot of things, which looking back as an adult, I can appreciate now in a way that I didn't as a kid. I was like, well, yeah, no, of course we moved house to be near to the school. That's just what people do. Like, no, that's not, that's not what everyone does. Um, so... Uh, my experience with gymnastics started with that, which was all very skills based. So we would learn skills and we do routines and it was a very um, like military gymnastics 
And it wasn't until I was closer to adulthood that I got involved in more traditional gymnastics and coaching. And it was a bit of a, uh, a culture shock for me because it's just very different. So I did my general gymnastics coaching qualifications uh, and it was a lot more handstanding and cartwheel and standing and pointing your toes and doing forward rolls than I'd done in my own experience of gymnastics. And there was uh, one kind of aspect of gymnastics that, that I didn't really agree with. And that was often the way that uh, some of the young people were treated. One of the gyms that I trained at hosted some Russian uh, coaches. And it's a story that I kind of sometimes tell in jest, but now actually I, I look back and I think that was an awful time. But there was, um, uh, there was an Eastern European team who were over and we were hosting them. There's a little girl who was on the beam and she's standing there and, and doesn't want to do her routine. And the coach is shouting at her, um, which again is fairly par for the course. And um, she didn't want to do a routine and the coach took her. There was a, like a, a different training space, which she couldn't see. And all we heard was like, he was shouting at her and then what sounded like him hitting her and the little girls come back. Now we don't, we didn't see it firsthand, but our assumption was that's what had just happened. Um, this girl would have been maybe nine years old, came back in red faced, wiped her face off and did quite a good beam routine to be fair. Some of our coaches wanted to go and get involved and want to step in because I don't think anyone thinks that like being aggressive and violent to a nine year old girl is ever acceptable. So, yeah, our head coach is like, look, that's just what they do. We can't get involved. And one of the uh, Russian coaches uh, had said the, the theory is the uh, the gymnast needs to be more afraid of the coach than of the move. If they if they do the move, they might get hurt. If they don't do the move, they will definitely get hurt. I mean, there's logic there, but it wasn't something that I wanted to. And it was kind of after that that I really lost my love of gymnastics. And it was about that time that I was getting involved in parkour. And I trained at gymnastic gyms, but I, I dipped back into gymnastic coaching and some recreational gymnastics and open sessions. But it really wasn't anything I ever wanted to touch again. Yeah, I suppose it is. One of the things about gymnastics is that the core of it is performance. It is the ability to do certain movements and they're looking for people who can fundamentally go on to win the Olympics. That's often feels like the point of gymnastics, even at the four, five, six-year-old age group, they're looking for the best so they can funnel them into the elite pathways, so they can funnel them into the Team GB, so they can funnel them to the Olympics. And so it does often feel like gymnastics is on a very specific path and is willing to get through as many bodies as possible to get there, which doesn't really value the individual. And like, I, I'm not like all of that sounds like a critique, but it almost isn't. It's like, yeah, that's your thing and that's okay. But let me explain why parkour is a better tool to teach the majority of the population, because it's about individuals and individual progress and making their lives better. It's just that changing outcome. And that sh that under like you don't even have to like be mean about it. You just have to like, understand that the point of parkour isn't about winning. Therefore, it's more useful. And you hit the nail on the head there with the, the individual thing. I mean, it, there was an, an old video, an old training gymnastic video, uh, training video we watched, and it was the coach. Um, I say coach. I use the term loosely. Was sitting on a chair in a big room, cigarette in hand, smoking, <laughs> and just. The, the big, big, long, long line of children just kept shouting the same word, which I imagine was jump, because when you shouted out, they all jumped. 
And over time, some of them would not be able to jump as high, some of them would wear out, some of them would jump higher than others. And they would just be weeding these kids down. And that was how they did their their kind of uh, selection process, seeing which kids could jump up and down on the spot for the longest. And they say the coach is just sitting there on a wooden chair with a cigarette shouting at the children. And uh, and I, I hope that that kind of thing doesn't go on so much anymore and binding of feet to give them a perfect point. And all these horror stories that you hear, that I'm, I mean, actually, we've heard modern horror stories in gymnastics in, in certainly USA gymnastics and, and even over here. And it just wasn't something I wanted to, to do. And, and gymnastics as a sport is so tied to, uh, or funding is so tied to um, competition results. So the best kids are seen as income for the, co- for the, for the club. So if you're winning competitions, the club's getting money. Therefore, you're giving attention and you're giving the best coaches to the kids that are most likely to win you money. And you're getting less attention to the kids that are in the corner there that maybe because they love it. They might love it more than the others. And uh, without spending too much time on gymnastics, the the last kind of uh, the last straw was um, uh, a guy we knew came second in the Gymnastic World Cup. Um, He was incredible. Really, really good gymnast. He was about, I think, 17, 18 years old at the time. And his prize money was 700 pounds. And he's like, I've trained for years for this. And um, I haven't been out with my friends. I haven't been to parties. Um, I've not done particularly well academically because I'm training 30 odd hours a week. I got 700 pounds and told to get back in the gym. And he just quit right then and there. After coming second in the World Cup, that was the, the point that he's like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, that's... I assume that there are great stories out there, but it's a shame that we have to spend so much time looking at the negatives. And of course, we, sh- on the one hand, one might argue that we should stop critiquing other sports, but on the other hand, that sport is doing its absolute best to try and take over ours. So we should really have a good quality debate about what it is and make sure we understand that which is trying to influence our sport so much and maybe help people understand why we're so resistant to the Gymnastics Federation getting its claws on our discipline. It's it's very easy because there are some similar looking movements to try and draw a parallel between the two, but the activities couldn't be more different in terms of their outcomes and the way they're practiced and even the kind of people that would engage with them. So I've got some horror stories of gymnastics. That doesn't mean that I hate gymnastics or I think gymnastics is is a terrible activity. It's not for me. And there are certainly, I've had negative uh, uh, experiences in that sport but some people love it and some people get great outcomes and some people go on to be very passionate very successful sports people and motivate and encourage others to get active through that sport that's fine i also can't stand football but you know that the, the half the world would disagree with me on that whereas parkour is truly inclusive anyone can do it anyone can get involved the barriers to entry are very very low and when we're talking about um, over, overcoming obstacles and we're talking about challenge setting and the nature of challenge, a challenge for me is going to be a different challenge to you and a different challenge to someone else. And being able to identify challenges and try and better yourself is different and the same for everyone. So we can all be working yeah. at the same challenge at very different levels. I, I like that we don't necessarily need to separate our classes into strictly into abilities we don't need to necessarily separate our classes into gender which we definitely don't a whole bunch of people could be doing the same activity i I generally separate mine by age group because that gives you a rough indication of height and strength Um, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of crossovers that you can do there as well so if it is such an inclusive sport why is it dominated by young fit men it's a very good question um i 
personally have issue with um, a lot of the the stuff that's highly televised and publicized. When people ask me about parkour as a daredevil sport or roof jumping, um, I normally would come back and say, anything's exciting if you do it on a rooftop. Play a game of football on a skyscraper and it's going to be more exciting because there's a risk of death. Just because that's what you see in the media doesn't mean that's what parkour is all about. And I think there's an element of yeah, young fit males coming to a parkour session or wanting to get involved in parkour and and maybe not even engaging with coaching of parkour, just coming along to a jam or climbing on a roof and jumping around and mimicking what they've seen on YouTube rather than actually engaging with the activity. And it's only as they get a bit more into it that they start to find out what it's all about. And some people will love that and some people will not love that. Yeah, it is. Um, it's difficult. I think there's an element about it being in public spaces, which chases away a lot of people, and a lot of people have different relationships with public spaces. One of the things that I think about is that as a 16-year-old, there was no question about me being able to go into the middle of the city and start jumping on things with complete strangers. No one was worried for my safety. Well, they were a little bit because it was my mother, but no one was worried that anything would go horribly wrong. Whereas I can't imagine uh, 16-year-old girls doing the same thing and anyone being okay with it. That sounds terrifying in our age because of the different way in which we gender things. So I do think there are aspects of the discipline that we do need to confront and think about and just not necessarily change, but recognize with that regard. But that being said, it has potential. And that's the important thing, more so than most sports to be inclusive of many people. Yeah, my own uh, opinion has changed a little bit. I've I've often been like, well, I want to be really inclusive, so therefore anyone can come to any of my classes. And it was only a few years into coaching that I had a few people say to me, do you do ladies-only classes? I was like, no, ladies can come to any class. We don't differentiate. We don't segregate. We're not like pigeonholing you. And so people said, well, we'd really like some ladies-only classes. I'm like, huh, okay, cool. I mean, as I'm not a lady, I have to take your word for it. And my ladies' classes, I, I used to run outdoor ladies' classes on a Tuesday night in the, the city centre in Chelmsford, and they were really popular. They loved it. And yeah. it was just a group of, of women of a variety of ages engaging with parkour at a level that was no different to what I was doing with the open classes and the guys, but they felt that that was the space they wanted to be in, which is fine. And we still yeah. run ladies' classes now at the academy um i'm really pushing for um more female leaders we've only got one um female coach at the moment and i really would like to make a an active effort to try and encourage more i have asked some of our experienced female practitioners if they'd like to do coaching courses and the answer is usually that they wouldn't want to engage with the coaching courses that were available um which i think is a subject we're probably going to talk about later um and i, I hope that now as the the coaching pathways are evolving that I can start to engage more female leaders. Nice. Yeah, we ran uh, female-only classes for three or four years, um, and we've actually stopped now because we have a 50-50 split in our adult classes, so we don't really need to. We have an under-12 girls class for younger girls because we tend to find that 8- to 12-year-old boys are just very loud, and a lot of girls don't like that, so that one's remained on. But um, we still run uh, probably about quarterly uh, women's only classes for a variety of reasons just because they are still important and popular and there are women who do need a little bit more safety in order to get into the sport so it's cool that that's happening with you too and you you it's nice to hear that story of someone going oh maybe my assumption is wrong and then listening to someone else i think that's a really important part of coaching 
But let's move on a little bit. Let's talk about where you are now. So kinetics. Uh, I am fascinated by kinetics for a number of reasons. The first one is that it has such a strong performance reputation. Um, and I know that this is, you mentioned to me a couple of times now that this is something that you're evolving on and thinking about, but it does have this feel of there is a large performance element in the coaching discipline when you do it. Is that something that you have consciously thought about? Is that something that you do in your classes? Is that uh, a good reputational marketing thing? How is your, how is Kinetic's relationship with performance these days? Uh, these days um, is far more coaching than performance, but originally um, Kinetics was formed as a performance group. That's that's how it started. In fact, just to try and shorten a very long story, um, Kinetics was started in Edinburgh, of all places. Um, and uh, I, I was telling uh, Tash about this when we were up there last week after after um, we kind of our aborted night out. We sat down. I, I told a long story of how Kinetics started in Edinburgh. Um, and that was that my then girlfriend um, was going up to Edinburgh Fringe to do uh, a show. To, she was in a show. And the show involved um, quite a lot of stage combat and weapons, and they couldn't fly with the weapons. So um, I agreed to drive up there, which and she wanted to drive with me because driving from Essex to Edinburgh is quite a long way. And the rest of the group, they'd all graduated drama school together, and and the rest of the group were kind of they'd been rehearsing together, and they were all bickering anyway, as as groups do. And um, and they were unhappy that she wanted to come up in the car with me rather than flying up with them, which meant she was going to get there at a different time to them. And it was all just very petty. And I, I, I got to Edinburgh. Um, we pulled up at the, the theatre uh, to unload the weapons and none of them said thank you or even said hello to me. They just got the stuff out of the boot, took it to the theatre. And we went back to, to the apartment um, that they'd rented for the duration of the fringe. Um, and the the guys were like, um, yeah, you can't stay here. I was like, I've just driven all your stuff from Essex to Edinburgh. And they're like, yeah, no, you can't stay here. And we haven't got any room. I was like, look, I'll sleep on the floor. I'll, I I just need to sleep before I drive home again. And they were just quite rude about it and like, no, no, you can't stay here. So I went out and um, camped in a campsite and it was hammering down with rain because it's Edinburgh. I had to find a campsite that had availability. I had a tent in the back of my car, fortunately, and put this tent up in the rain. And and um, at that point, my then girlfriend was like, hey, I don't want to be up here with these people anymore, but we've got venues booked for this show we've written. And I was like, well, we'll just put on our own show. How hard can it be? Um, so she got in the car with me and we drove uh, back down to Essex. And over the course of that summer, we wrote and produced a piece of theatre that involved um, stage combat, which was her speciality at the time. Um, lots of physical theatre, lots of acrobatics. And I used some of the free runners, the guys that I did Britain's Got Talent with. And, uh, and we did two summers of touring theatre that was like a physical theatre with a narrative, like actual plays with some music and fighting and acrobatics it was quite well received um because she already had some venues booked and we went to this um, beautiful theater down in cornwall where it was carved out of an old quarry stunning venue and um yeah it was it was a really interesting couple of years and um again off the back of britain's got talent we were doing a lot of corporate entertainment so i had the luxury of spending the summer writing a show so we were doing shows for barclays and all kinds of trade shows and movie premieres and things it was a, it was a good couple of years and then the financial crisis hit and uh, there's not as much corporate entertainment. I mean, we're talking big, high-end corporate entertainment. We went out to Switzerland once for someone's birthday party to perform. It was it was utterly ridiculous. Uh, to, but to answer your question, I was contacted by local authorities that, that had just found us and they had uh, a low-income area um, and they were asking if we could do workshops for these kids. I was like, yeah, 
uh, probably I think we can probably teach them how to do some parkour um, you know I got some coaching experience through gymnastics and um, so we I was involved in the um, British Parkour Coaching Association um, with Dave Sedgley and those guys back in the day and helped write the initial Dave's going to be so proud that you got a shout out on this podcast I'm going to let him know <laughs> well um, I was on the the first board um, of the British Parkour Coaching Association and helped write the coaching standards and come up with the that coaching qualifications while Parker UK was in its infancy. Um, and what really happened, we had a, a, a uh, let's, let's avoid names just for, for litigation purposes, but <laughs> um, what had happened was there were a couple of different organisations who were vying to be governing body of parkour and British Parkour Coaching Association was one of them. We had a sport development officer in St Albans who was working really hard to form a governing body so we could standardise parkour and be able to deliver it in these kind of outreach sessions so it's a recognized sport um, and get the proper coaching standards put down insurances in place and what happened was is, is uh, an organization who were uh, very london centric got on board with a sport development officer in city of westminster and they effectively just said we're the governing body and when questioned they said no we're the governing body because our constitution says that we are the governing body was like, well, who recognizes you? Well, we recognize us because we're the governing body. And because the UK is so London centric, they had a lot of weight behind them simply saying they were the governing body. And at the time yeah. I turned around and went, you're not the governing body. You're not my governing body. I don't agree with you. I don't agree with your coaching standards. I don't agree with. And it took a couple of years for me to go and have a meeting with that, um, that who was then the CEO of Parkour UK and say, look, maybe we should join together and maybe we should share ideas and, and at that point, he's like, well, no, we extended the olive branch, said you could do our qualifications a few years ago. But now if you want to do it, you've got to pay. I'm like, huh, cool. Yeah. Um, so we, I got some funding and I did engage with the level one and the level two uh, Park UK. And then I ended up um, getting onto the board of Park UK. But uh, initially, again, jumping back in time a little bit. So we come out of performance and there are a couple of local authorities asking if we could teach people how to do parkour. So I went into that very much as a performer doing some workshops to make some money. And then really rediscovered my love of coaching that I had through gymnastics that I kind of lost from gymnastics. Cool. It's really interesting that you're talking about your relationship with Parker UK so much, especially now that obviously uh, communication between Parker UK and most of the major coaching organisations has broken down because they're really not that interested in us anymore. And so what's happening, at least to me, is that the whole landscape is diversifying so with that in mind we should probably talk a little bit about parkour education tell me a little bit about uh what parkour education aims to do parkour education um seems to be growing up very quickly um it was initially uh myself and scott jackson were asked by parkour uk if we could um using our expertise from gymnastics trampolining to write an acrobatics module as a bolt-on cpd for the parkour coaching qualifications that existed so we could teach parkour coaches how they could use flips and spins in their coaching, how to effectively uh, use these movements, coach these movements, train people to do these movements, and kind of give a, a remit on what was and wasn't acceptable. So we took the stance, stance that we weren't going to um, include any tumbling or hand balancing because that kind of thing didn't really lend itself well to parkour practice. People practice those things, sure, but really if you were going to be putting acrobatic movements into your parkour it's more likely going to be variations of front flip back flip side flip and spins um, so that's what we focused on um, and 
there's again like we mentioned there's big differences between gymnastic coaching tumbling coaching and um parkour coaching so for a parkour coach to go and have to do basically a level two in gymnastics and learn all of the competition rules and all of the pieces of apparatus they're never going to touch just to be able to teach flips it seemed a little bit um a little bit too Over much for, for what they need yeah so we were writing that and then when communications kind of broke down with parkour uk and parkour uk seemed to fall out of love with the coaching community and want to focus on people doing parkour in the street or the competition side of things which seems to be their focus i, I don't know what their focus is because it's not been communicated to us um but when they stopped providing insurance uh, products for the parkour coaches um and or stopped providing insurance products for parkour gyms and stopped giving any direct support support to the gyms then the kind of relationship broke down and myself and scott had this great product that we were writing and, and we're like the community needs this we're writing it because the community needs it it wouldn't really be fair if we just delivered this cpd to our own organizations and we'd be the only ones that can do things legitimately so we I mean, scott's got a quite an, a much more academic background than me um he's a uh, got his uh flips nerd well not just flips nerd but he's he's far more academically minded than i am um and and i wouldn't have been able to do it without scott and i, I think we both bring things to the table but scott is very much uh far more good uh, far far more on board with standardizing things and paperwork than i am which is great because mm-hmm. scott's amazing he was also got an incredibly simple yet intelligent way of coaching i really like to spend yeah. time with um so anyway uh scott and myself wrote this thing and we approached a couple of different organizations and awarding bodies um some of which said they didn't want anything to do with it because it wasn't belonging to a governing body and we spoke to one organization and said that the governing body isn't providing these things at, at present at the time of uh, at that time and i think probably still today uh there is no coaching pathway available through the governing body so there's you you can't book onto a level two course at the moment it's still in its pilot phase um so we've said we we said look there isn't a way of people getting qualified there has to be an alternative um so we had to jump through some hoops and we had to um do things a very specific way to get it uh, recognized as a recognized cpd and we had to pay a license to them as well to get that uh, registered which which we did out of our own pockets um and we've delivered the course now three times um, and it's evolved a little bit. Uh, the most recent one was in Edinburgh last week, which we had a great time with, really enjoyed it. It was a great group. And I think we're kind of now comfortable with this product that we've got. And we've got a few other ideas that we want to put in place because at the moment, like I said, there's no way of getting qualified as a parkour coach. So we have to give an alternative to that. So we're looking at um, ways that people can get qualified as a sports coach and then do a CPD, which will teach them how to add parkour to their generic sports coaching qualifications and upskill existing coaches but we're at, we're at a point now where parkour can't grow if new coaches can't come in that's it just can't um so we have to be able to give people a, an access route into coaching parkour and it's just unfortunate the governing body isn't on board with that their priorities seem to be elsewhere yeah it's a real shame i've definitely found in trying to get the governing body talking about these things has been either stonewall or misunderstanding which has been a real shame because the uh, I spent I spent six months trying to join Parkour UK this year, and it took me. Uh, I was it was taking on average three to four weeks for them to get back to me, uh, and basic questions about what they were requesting of us to do just weren't able to be answered, and it was a real shame, because you expect more from them, but um, that is the space we're in, and I guess it does lead to the great news, which is there is no worry for us uh, re- reoccupying that space since 
they don't seem to be doing so. So great, it sounds, and of course, the bit of this that's quite important and what makes this podcast, hopefully, the next bit of this podcast vaguely interesting, is that I did your course last week. Um, and I really enjoyed it. It's nice. I don't actually often enjoy getting coached. I find it a slightly odd thing about myself. Uh, I had a, a very difficult time uh, in school. I'm quite fast. I'm uh, quite academically minded, so I pick up things faster than most coaches want to go. And so as a result, I tend to find uh, the speed at which most coaching happens to be a bit slow for me. But the nice thing about working with you and Scott was that you sort of ran it and took the pace and explained things and formed the structure. And then when you wanted that deep dive, that excellence, Scott was there. And so it utilized both of your skills very, very well, I feel, because you are someone who can talk and who control the space and who has an understanding of how to interact with people. And then when I came in and asked some awkward, difficult questions, you guys came in with deep, complicated answers, which impressed me because that's what I like. I like the nuance and the nuance. Uh, we, actually so, had, we actually had a conversation prior to the course um, about the hedge factor. Um, and it was something that both of us were concerned about because uh, obviously I consider you a friend and a peer. Yeah. We, we both do very similar jobs. So for me to come in um, in a position of coaching you and teaching you, we, we had to... Um, myself and Scott both had to remind each other that this is our specific area of expertise and we've been doing this for a very long time. So we're not um, in a position of superiority over our peers. We're just imparting our knowledge on you guys so that you guys can then work at the same level that that our coaches do uh, because this is stuff that you potentially didn't know or had questions around. Yeah, and we did. And um, you, you answered them, I think, very well. It's very nice. And one of the things I, I get to say really positively is, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And um, it is interesting. I am aware that I have uh, an occasionally intimidating reputation. <laughs> uh, but uh, I feel like a lot of that is, it either comes from people who have not stood up to being asked slightly more complicated questions or just because I have a tendency to run roughshod over what I think are silly ideas and I'm working on it. But um, hopefully I wasn't too annoying on the course. No, not at all. Uh, not at all. We, we came away and we're like, that was, that was really good. Uh, it was nice that things were, that uh, clarity was asked for and discussions were had, but there was at no point where I was like, oh my God, Hedge is being obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to destroy my reputation here, Brad. Okay, so maybe uh, let me ask you a couple of quickfire questions there for about acrobatic movements, because it is interesting. Can you give me an explanation of why acrobatic movements are distinctly different from other parkour movements, why they're being separated out in this way? So we wanted to differentiate um, acrobatic movements that you might have seen in other sports. So gymnastics refers to somersaults, saltos um, and twists. And we wanted to take a very narrow bracket of, of sort of families of movements and make them part of the parkour family of movements. It was very hard to write our definitions because if you're talking about rotation, well, a roll is a rotation. So a roll in the air, is that still a roll? Is that still part of the parkour syllabus? Where does a roll become a flip? So we, we just went straight back to planes of movement. So if you're rotating um, the body off the ground, in the sagittal, transverse, um, or ah, longitudinal. <laughs> Sorry, longitudinal. There we go. Or the longitudinal um, axis of movement. Um, then those are the families of movement we're talking about. So the the um, 
specifics of it are doing forward somersaults, back somersaults, side somersaults, and adding one or more twists to those movements. And the, we've said that the coaching of those is really up to single somersaults with a single twist, because if someone can do a somersault with a full twist, then the amount of coaching they need to add in another twist or start looking at one and a half and double somersaults is far less than an absolute beginner who's never gone upside down before. Um, yes. So we're very hands-on and getting the, the, the learners to do as much spotting and activity as possible so they can feel it and they can find all of these common faults. And hopefully mm -hmm. everyone can make a little bit of improvement in their own movements over the course of the course so they then understand what their learners are going to go through. But really the course is about just um, as much uh, hands-on spotting and coaching as possible. So we've taken that those families of movement and we've just broken them right down into all of the component parts. And the course is built around building blocks uh, your coaching toolkit so if someone comes to you and says i want to do a full twisting back somersault okay can you do a back somersault no okay well let's start with that let's start with some back drops <laughs> let's start with some backward rolls let's start with some big straight jumps and look at building those movement patterns and then you just add a bit and add a bit and add a bit and suddenly someone who can't do a back somersault is doing a backflip with a full twist because you're just adding a little bit and you're teaching the movement patterns that then they can apply um, i think the twisting yeah. bit was the most interesting um, because to make your body do a full twist is actually quite easy. If you ask someone to just stand on the spot and do a half turn or a full turn, most people can do that. You get them to do that mid flip and suddenly their brains explode. So we just yes. have to make all of those movements very simple for them and practice them. And then we can bolt them together. Yeah. And uh, to provide just a little bit more applause for the first time ever, a back 360 makes sense to me. And I have landed some very sloppy ones onto crash mats after being taught by you guys. So I appreciate that. I think it's also meant that if I do get asked to cover our flips and tricks class, I have the tools to do so. And I'm not worried. Before it was very all over the place what I was doing. I was a bit of this, bit of that, things I'd figured out. But what you gave us was a toolkit that will allow us to deliver a product, which is what you want from a CPD, really. Yeah. Uh, and our focus was on the safe delivery and giving you um, like a sandbox to play in with, yeah. with very defined rules. Um, we say we don't touch tumbling, we don't touch hand balance, um, but we do more specific parkour things like flips and tricks off of blocks using rails and using bars to do those moves with um, takeoffs and landings, those kind of things. Cool. So I think what I'm going to do now is give you a bit of space because before we started, you mentioned that you were you're thinking about right now and so we've definitely talked up your abilities as an acrobat and as a coach and how it comes from performance background but you seem to be in a position where you are changing and moving do you want to tell me a little bit about what your plans are yeah i'm doing a lot more work at the moment um that's community focused and i'm doing a lot of uh personal education on um dealing with uh, young people who have had uh, adverse experiences in, in growing up and, and youth trauma, um, children from low-income families, children living in the care system. And these, these are things that are very important to me um, to try and just give people something to do. And like I, I said before, parkour is really accessible. And I firmly believe that everyone has an activity that they will enjoy. So if young people are experienced or get access to lots of different things, they'll find something they enjoy doing. And that might be singing, dancing, drama, parkour, football. It could be anything, but they need to be able to try it to know whether they love it or not. Um, and, and I think everyone's got a passion out there. They've just got to find what it is. And uh, 
if I can get people involved in parkour and they can be healthier and happier, then then brilliant. But they need access to that. So we're doing a lot more funded projects. I've just started up a not-for-profit organization um, separate to Team Kinetics, um, which is uh, applying for funding to give young people warm, safe spaces over the winter, um, give them some activity, also providing uh, hot, nutritious meals for young people in the uh, in the cold winter evenings. And these kind of things um, that I wouldn't have really considered doing as as work some years ago we've done a lot of youth outreach over the years but now uh say i recently became a father and i think it's really important that we we give young people the best uh, best we can and again a lot of that comes from graham um i find it very difficult to make a lot of noise about the stuff that i do and i find that quite hard again probably a hangover from graham mm. um when people tell me that i should uh, market and advertise the the youth work we're doing and the work that we do well that defeats the object so no but you have to tell people you're yeah. doing it so that more people and I, yeah. I I don't like making a lot of noise about those things. It's even a bit strange to be talking about it because it's just stuff that we do. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, the, the working with the young people in the care system um, has been very, very rewarding because some of them can be a pain in the backside. Oh, God, yes. But you give them some consistency, you give them something, somewhere to be and somewhere to hang out and they just start swearing at you a little bit less and, and maybe there's a bit of respect there. And but if those kids feel safe and secure for a couple of hours and they're not out mixing with the kind of people that we really don't want them to mix with, then great. So using parkour as a diversion is great. It's also super accessible. We can go out into an estate, a couple of coaches, and we can engage with young people and just jam with them, train with them, show them where they can and can't train, tell them what's safe and what's not safe. And those kids aren't then engaging in antisocial behavior. They're not mixing with people they shouldn't be mixing with. And if anyone really enjoys it, if we go into an estate and set some challenges, you come back a week later and they've been working on those challenges all week and they want to show you what they've done. And you know that if they've been working on that challenge, they haven't been doing other things. So that, that's cool. kind of where we're at. But um, I have a reasonably young workforce. I've got, I've got people that have worked for me for a lot of years. Um, I've got uh, one of my senior coaches has worked for me now for 12 years. Um, but since he was a young person, since he was a kid in classes, and we tend to get a lot of our coaches from... Uh, the young people that have come through our classes and then they kind of reach 16 to 18 and when they're at college university they'll do the coaching qualification and stick around so we haven't got a lot in the way of um, older coaches and I've always been really tolerant and I've always wanted to just kind of give them a lot of leeway and a lot of freedom and recently I've just discovered that I need to bring to my coaching team more of the discipline that I bring to my classes because there's been people kind of treating the academy more like their own personal playground than uh than a place of work and i want to change that, that attitude now the delivery of my classes is excellent i'm happy with everyone's mm. coaching but it's the attitude around that and um asking people to return phone calls is is a, a fighting a losing battle asking people to tidy up after themselves and i know when we're talking about young particularly young males it, it, they don't do that at home why would they do that at work but i'm not their mum so i think bringing in far more discipline to my coaching team and giving them a little bit less freedom and being a little bit more explicit with my instruction rather than giving them freedoms um, is is kind of where I'm at now and I think I have spoiled them by trying to like I, I take my coaches out for their birthdays we go out a few times a year I'll take them out for meals and I'll always be very thankful when they go over and above and I think some of that can be taken for granted so I need to have as much stick as carrot I think this is this is my shift at the moment that's really interesting um, I guess it kind of it makes sense to me from the the playful attitude you have and the approach you've always taken coming in from a performance background and the 
story about kind of hiring the young people that you would end up in that space where you were like, actually, this is my problem. Like it, it makes sense having you having told me the story, and it's something that I've worried about a long time, which is why my coaching force is so much older than yours. Um, the average age of my work or my workforce is probably mid thirties at this stage, which is slightly terrifying. And of course, we have a different set of problems as a result of that. But it is an interesting thought process because you don't want to be a parent. You're paying them, they should do their job. But also, you do want to be doing continual professional development. And sometimes that's a bit simpler than we give it credit for. Um, I remember sitting down with one of my younger coaches. He had to write a 1,000 word essay for college and he hadn't written a thousand, a thousand words ever. And to me, like I can write a thousand words by accident. So it was that kind of mind shift of all right, come back and like, okay, so what is the block here? How do we fix it? How do we give the time to this person to help them on a pathway? And he did it, he's got his HND, so he did a damn good job and I'm very happy. I do want to, can I, uh, This you might need a second to answer this question, but um, the, one of the next people I'm interviewing is Adam Romain, who is probably the most experienced coach working with at-risk youth in the country. So Adam's just been doing it for a decade now, and he specifically works with incredibly um, difficult kids. He's been in a lot of schools uh, full of kids who are school refusers, and he's also done a lot of work with uh, kids with mental health and um, disabilities. So he's got this huge amount of experience. What sort of ideas and information would you like me to try and pull out of him in the conversation? That's an interesting one. <clears throat> so I, I mentioned uh, before we started recording, uh, I had a meeting this morning uh, about a young person and the situation around this young person is very, very close to my own heart and very close to me personally. Um, and I was having a, a conversation with the, the people working with him, who uh, so the, the staff at school about how we can best engage with them. And I think the challenge that I would have when trying to engage someone who's difficult to engage or someone who's got behavioral issues or someone who's got deep uh, personal traumas that have gone on and and isn't, um, isn't engaging with school or activity, how do you give them consistency while also maintaining boundaries? Now, what I mean by that is... Um, if we would say to this kid, look, if you go to school and you do your lessons, then you can go to the parkour gym tonight. Well, what if he doesn't? And then he doesn't get to go to the parkour gym. And then he's like, well, everyone gives up on me. I've got, there's another thing that you just, you haven't, you haven't done what you've said. So you've got to have the rules. And, the, and, and what we came up with was um, that there would be a direct communication between myself and the school to know what he's been doing, what he hasn't been doing. So that I can then have a conversation with him when he comes to me about um his behavior and what is and isn't acceptable and perhaps have some smaller things like he particularly wants to use like do some tumbling or do some flips and it's like okay well if you go to all your lessons this week then we'll do that so we don't take away his time with me or we don't take away his access to parkour because then he's like well pff, why should i bother but we can have some smaller mm-hmm. um, rewards mm-hmm. within that. So he's still got the consistency of coming to me and I can be a mentor to him and I can help the young man out um, whilst also engaging with some physical activity and just some kind of uh, adult role model who doesn't have another 30 kids in the room to deal with. So I guess my question to Adam is how do you keep them engaged and also develop those relationships um, to, to get them to stay engaged and try and develop the behavior over time because it's very easy to uh, 
Um, sorry, I might jump off on another tangent here. I had a longer conversation this morning with the staff at the school about whether exclusion is an effective tactic in the 21st century. Because if someone's not engaging with school and they're being difficult and you say to them, fine, go home then. It doesn't really send the right message, you know, because then there's going to be an, a level of anxiety when they come back and they've been singled out. So they've got to go back into a room of another 20 or 30 people knowing that they've been sent home for misbehaving. And if their home life is a problem, are you then sending them back into a, a dangerous or uncomfortable situation where their safe space should be at school? So is exclusion a good thing? Is it is it even functional in this day and age? And then the other side of that, which was which was where the, we, the school kind of came back and said, well, we have over a thousand children to worry about. If that one child is being so difficult that they're disrupting the education of 29 others in their room, we have to just remove that one. Whereas when you're talking about mentorship and, and being a peer leader, that one child is my focus. So that kid comes in. I'm not going to send him home because he's not disrupting anyone except me. And that's kind of what I've signed up for. Interesting. Yeah. Um, there's definitely like exclusion is a fascinating topic. Um, and it does to a certain extent need to be used. I think that um, like your example of uh, that, that bargaining of, well, if you do this, then I will give you this. Well, you didn't give me that. So that idea of really strong red lines, having strong lines, I think is, is definitely part of it as well, because consistency of approach and like being honest and then learning to trust what you say so trust is this huge factor that's often missing especially british society especially really seems to struggle with trust i noticed that a lot so them learning to, that you could be trusted to do what you say and then explaining it to them which is i find a weird one one of the things that i really notice a lot of time and maybe this is the uh, the neurodiversity in me people don't explain the whys of their behavior sometimes see so you you were screaming really, really loud for the last two minutes and it hurt my ears. I would like you to stop because it hurts my ears and that gives me pain. Can you stop screaming? Like, I don't, I've never heard another coach ever say that to a child and yet I have that conversation with children on a regular basis. And so, like, it's very interesting what, what kind of comes up and what coaches worry about. But I will take that fairly complicated question to Adam and uh, hopefully you'll get it, an answer from him when it comes. But let's try and wrap up there. Um, Brad, how can people find you? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, to the best of my knowledge, I'm the only Brad Wenders in the world. Um, the surname Wenders Whoa. is, uh, it, it's a misspelling of, of another word, uh, which there's quite a few Wenders, W-E-N-D-E-R-S in the world. Um, and I checked the census a few years ago and I could only find 90 Wenderses in the world. Um, so there's very, very few of us. Um, so I am the only Brad Wenders in the world. So if you type Brad Wenders into any search engine, any social media, it's the name that I use online, that you'll find me. Um, and there's probably lots of questionable content and things I've done over the years and some stuff that I really don't want on the internet anymore, but that's there forever. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you if you search for me, then then you'll find me because I'm the only one. Cool. Uh, uh, conversely, um, my real name is John Hall and John Hall is a 2005 Nobel laureate for physics. So... Uh, there's no chance of finding me online that way. Um, cool. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Brad. It was lovely speaking to you. And um, hopefully I'll see you again soon. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll endeavour to come up again.
Thanks for listening. Follow along at Jump Into Parkour on Instagram if you can, and I'll see you next time.